Friends, would you please pray with me? You, Lord, are our teacher. Teach us that what is bitter can become sweet as honey. As we spend this time with your word, let us taste and see how good it is. Amen. I miss my friend Sarah Cooper Seawright this morning. She's on vacation, but I miss her. Friends, you have read the news that according to U.S. intelligence, President Vladimir Putin of Russia intends to invade Ukraine sometime in the coming week, perhaps in the coming days. And for several weeks, we have felt the crescendo of calculations and seen signs of political maneuvering on the international scene. With the stage being set and messages being sent, it feels like we are just one moment away from an ignition of events that the world will not be able to undo. Those living in eastern Ukraine are surely scared, knowing that something dangerous is about to happen. Their children have been drilled. They know what to do when they hear the sound of sirens. Older children know to grab younger children under their armpits and carry them into basements turned into bomb shelters. What dread the Ukrainian people must be feeling. Dread of an event that will overtake them, that they will have to deal with, whether they like it or not. This is the kind of situation that calls forth prayer, even from people who don't usually pray. God, help us. And yet, when we know that something is going to happen that will overtake us, that will eventually result in irreparable harm, that will have a fallout that we can't even imagine because of all the contingencies of time, chance, circumstance, history, and power, as well as all the forces of the world conspiring to prevent, accelerate, leverage, or contain the situation. It's hard to know what to pray for. For what, in the name of God, do we pray? Do we pray for God to act swiftly and with strength, to intervene as only God can, to wipe out the wicked, to put an end to one's enemies so that they can no longer be an existential threat? Is that how we imagine God would exercise God's sovereignty? After all, who but God is powerful enough to tame or hold at bay the world's most powerful leaders. Such prayers would be understandable. I imagine the psalmist would understand the fear and anxiety from which such prayers would stem. After all, didn't the psalmist himself once pray to the Lord, Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler. Rise up to help me. 
draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. When one reads the Psalms, one cannot doubt that the psalmist knew what it meant truly to suffer at the hands of the wicked who carry out evil. And yet, here, in Psalm 37, the psalmist, no longer in the thick of things, is able to take a step back, reflect on the lessons he has learned through life experience, and offer advice. Psalm 37 is the wisdom offered by an older person who has suffered political terror and social and economic hardship. He offers his hard-won wisdom to a younger generation as basic instruction, as basic that if we could read this psalm in Hebrew, we would immediately notice that his injunctions follow the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Vav. He has seen enough over the course of his lifetime to say, no matter what wild victories the wicked seem to plot and win, stay the course, remain faithful, trust in the Lord, and do good. While the wicked are expending their energy plotting, targeting, and exploiting in order to take and not give back, you commit your way to the Lord Trust in him, be still, and wait patiently, for God will act. The psalmist profoundly knows that fear or anxiety is ultimately what undoes trust or faith. Anxiety makes patience nearly impossible. Anxiety causes us to take everything into our own hands, to be masters of our own fates, and trusting very little to the Lord. So the psalmist counsels again and again, do not fret. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not fret over those who carry out evil plans. Do not fret it only leads to more evil. Though not a psychologist, the psalmist has the acuity to know that when we allow ourselves to become consumed with anxiety, we become part of the problem. How can we not fret when the wicked seem to be getting their way without denying this? The psalmist says that there will come a time when the wicked will wither and fade like grass, vanish like smoke, be cut off, or when their sword shall enter their own hearts. The psalmist is vague about how the wicked will perish, but he is clear that they won't endure forever. In verse 35, he writes, I have seen the wicked oppressing and towering like a cedar of Lebanon. But then he goes on to say, Again I passed by, and they were no more. 
Though I sought them, they could not be found. To a people who have been traumatized by the threatening presence of enemies so strong and well-established like a cedar tree, how remarkable and relieving was the thought that the day would come when that tree would just no longer be there. As difficult to follow as the psalmist's advice might be, it is nevertheless more practical than perfectionist. Unlike Jesus who says, love your enemies, the psalmist offers something more basic. He says, try not to focus on your enemies. Try not to expend your emotional energy on them. In a recent episode of On Being, radio host Krista Tippett interviewed Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg, both American Buddhist leaders. Together, they've written a book entitled, Love Your Enemies. In their interview, they spoke primarily about how hatred and anger toward our enemies can consume us, and how instead, we can learn through Buddhist teachings and meditation to love our enemies. Recognizing how love of enemy is for Buddhists, Christians, and really anyone, the hardest commandment to follow, they explain that before we can attain the state of love and compassion for our enemies, we can stop at a midway station where we can practice non-hatred of our enemies. So because loving our enemies may be so hard, let's try not hating our enemies. Once you feel a sense of non-hatred for your enemy, then you can move toward love and compassion for the enemy. Concerned to pass down basic wisdom for faithful living, the psalmist offers practicable advice that we not fret or be consumed by worry because of the wicked, but instead trust in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, and do good. The psalmist leaves the wicked and everything else beyond the good that we can do to God, trusting that God will act. How do we imagine God will act? How will God exercise God's sovereignty? Well, none of us knows this exactly, but we do know how God exercised God's sovereignty in the life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God chose to be vulnerable and weak rather than almighty governor of the universe. We also know how God gave birth to the church. God chose to call forth disciples from regular people and entrusted them with a mission to work for the kingdom of God. If there's a pattern to how God exercises God's sovereignty through history, then we know not to look at those who tower over us and fill us with dread, but instead to look for something like a tiny mustard seed that can grow into a great shade tree, or to be surprised 
by a coin that once was lost and then is found. Trusting in God, who works in the least likely ways and among the least likely people and places, be still, wait patiently, for God will act. Amen.